Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord, the comic book podcast brought to you by Seekport, the best online and unusual source for comic books, news, reviews, and previews. Buy their books, read their articles. For example, this week on Seekport, Stuart Warren has a very interesting article on Studio Ghibli and representations of fascism, which isn't a combination you hear often. As we're talking Seekport, we should mention they have a Patreon. Yes, support smart criticism in comics. We do the heavy thinking, so you don't have to. And by we, we mean, of course, I, Tom Shapira, and... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Let the great indulgence begin. Where's that from? Valhalla Mad. Oh. <laughs> I went with something contemporary this time. From all the lines of that comic. We're back. It's been a long, long time. It feels good to be back. And I think that in the tradition of the smorgasbord, we should start with a light appetizer of schadenfreude and talk about Archie Comics. It's been talked to death, but, Woo! you know, it's Afterlife with Archie, so we'll resurrect it. Yes. Yes, and like the terrible zombie, it spread all over the place. My God. So basically what happened was that Archie Comics launched a Kickstarter campaign. For launching basically three titles. What was it? A Jughead title by... I think it was Jughead, Betty and Veronica, yeah. and one other that... Yeah, with big names like Chip Zdarsky and such. Mm-hmm. And the thing was, A, it's Archie. It's not a small publisher. And B, it came to be known that all of these titles have been selected in advance because Archie had a deal with Target, right? Yes. So they would publish them anyway. And naturally, the internet went well, semi-berserk. Now, see, this is why I love Kickstarter. Yes, it's a flawed system. Yes, it can be exploited. Yes, the end... Oh, and we should mention, in case you don't know, after the semi-buzzer internet thing, they shut it down and say... Yes. Abort! Abort! We're not sorry, and we're happy for the support, but we realize now, and et cetera, et cetera. I'll get back to that, because I have something to say to Mr. Goldwater, too. So basically, what happened was, for all of Kickstarter's weaknesses, people aren't stupid. This campaign was asking for $350,000, right? Yep. For three comics that were already coming out. It's just that they wanted the money, according to CEO John first, Goldwater. First physical uh, tile, $20 for the four tiles. So you pay $5 for a title before shipping. I think it's $10 in total, including shipping. So For a four ninety nine book. For a book that, when actually published, would probably be three ninety nine. So... Thanks for your early support. Give us more money. Right. Instead then, of less. No, it's the way that the CEO phrased it was that they needed the money in order to expedite the release of these books, which would normally be delayed until 2016, 2017. But the fact that you would be paying $10 for a $3 or $4 comic made people realize, I mean, that's the source of the negative criticism. Kickstarter can and has been used to crowdfund projects that would ordinarily not come to light, right? That they would not exist. Fresh Romance would not exist without Kickstarter. The Veronica Mars movie would not exist without Kickstarter. You see it a lot in video games. Yeah. You know, games that would not have been published only exist because of Kickstarter. The fact that they thought that people would put down over a quarter of a million dollars for books that were already being written, drawn, whatever, like they were already contracted, demonstrates... Ignorance, and really, if you need anything to launch a successful Kickstarter, you I need to know how you are perceived publicly. Because Mark Wade, uh, you saw Mark Wade's reaction to this. Yes. He was like, you guys don't know what's going on behind the scenes at Archie, financial difficulties, whatever. But here's the thing, Mark Wade. And really, he's been screwing up so often with social media, he needs to step back for a little bit. Because 
all of a sudden, it does not matter the reality of Archie comic situations. The fact is, they're perceived as having a license that is lucrative. They're putting out books on a monthly basis. They don't have any... It's not like they're near bankruptcy. You know, like, if Kickstarter had existed in the mid-90s, maybe they might have saved Marvel from bankruptcy. But at least everybody knew about it back then. It's Yeah, it's a matter of public perception, because publisher have used, not Kickstarter, but a Kickstarter... Uh, model before Top Shelf when they had their near breakup in the early 2000s you know they called for people basically buy a lot of our products quickly or we'll fold and people did it Fantagraphics do it I think semi-annually by now Mm -hmm. and for some reason with them it's okay because they're such a small niche highbrow publisher which is basically call for their audience we're giving you all this high-end products which cost us a lot of money and Carter loves underdogs yeah and Archie would have to suffer a lot to be perceived as an, as an underdog. And according to all sources, there really are financial problems with Archie because the company is in constant lawsuit battle. I recommend you should read The Outhouse. They had mm-hmm. a very good article about it when the scandal came to light. Yeah, but, but what they said at the time, they were absolutely right. The whole idea here is it's a problem of public perception. You are asking your readers to pay more than twice the amount. It's like, you remember that Tezuka Kickstarter? Yeah, yeah. Right? You're asking readers to pay more than they would have ordinarily for no other reason than to expedite books that would have existed regardless. That's not what Kickstarter is used for. Of course it got shut down because people were not having it. Yeah. So every time you forget how Kickstarter works, the crowd will be happy to remind you. That's what I like about them. Next. Marvel has approached Ava DuVernay as a possible director for Black Panther. She is currently best known for having put out Selma. I think that's her only feature film, right? Is it? Well, if it is, that's a hell of a debut. Yeah, that's a good start. Now, there were also reports that they may be looking at Rick Famuyiwa, who directed Dope. Which I have no idea what it is. I haven't seen, but apparently it's a very impressive film. If he gets Black Panther, they might give Captain Marvel to Ava DuVernay. So it's good to keep seeing strong contenders still in the race. They're not neglecting these properties. It's an interesting choice. You know, watching uh, Selma, I wouldn't think Black Panther. Well... Not a lot of jungle action in Selma. Maybe, maybe I missed something. Maybe I no, necked up. but it, the optics would be very, very good for that. At the time, we said, you know, what would happen if Michelle McLaren steps down from Wonder Woman and a man took her place? Yeah. So here it's like, you know, if you're doing Black Panther, you could do worse than to but, have an African-American director. But the question American is, director. would it be an African-American director taking control of the narrative, or would it be Kevin Feige dictating from above, you should do this and that? Because this is what happens... It's always going to be Feige. Yeah. But on the other hand, that's not necessarily a bad thing either. Like, yeah, but I think we need to it, wait and see how Ant-Man turns yeah. out. And based on that, we can sort of guess and it's because there's and, been a lot of speculation and it's still rumor and speculation it's advanced rumor and speculation but yeah. you know marvel can switch directors midstream sure it's happened speaking of movie news though there have been some interesting choices i think for new films so fox has announced that they're making a new mutants movie now my head immediately went towards warlock and cypher and, yeah. and all of that 80s weirdness i have no idea how you would do something like that. Well, because the timeline in the Fox X-Men franchise is so screwed up. When are they the current uh, new New Mutants or the mid-80s New New Mutants? I don't even know. Because I'm assuming that Deadpool, for example, and Gambit, which we'll talk about in a minute, these movies are coming out more or less concurrently with Apocalypse, right? which is Brian Singer's film. They don't seem to be in the same timeline. No, because Apocalypse takes place in the 80s, I would right. say. Right, and the others, as it's far as am- I know, are contemporary. It's 
amazing the X-Men's film franchise ability to properly copies the X-Men comic franchise time travel <laughs> time travel shenanigans modern X-Men franchise time travel shenanigans I'm telling you Alan Davis is probably looking at this being like even I don't know what's going on anymore I'm lost Brian Michael Bendis is looking at this and like dude not cool that, that doesn't take a lot for Bendis but that that's a different rant I will say though that Fox does seem to be making strange decisions overall because oh. the other movie project they announced and this is late breaking news is that they would like to reboot League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Now, Tom, I am imagining Alan Moore sitting somewhere and hearing this news and being like... And he just sees red, you know? And the snakes start pouring out of his living room couch or something. I don't know. It's just... Are you kidding me? This podcast brought to you by FX Special Features. <laughs> I mean, look. At this point, I would rather watch Penny Dreadful. That's not an insult to Penny Dreadful, but I feel like there's really only room for one Victorian monster mashup in the market, and Penny Dreadful has cornered Which that market. Which channel owns Penny Dreadful? Showtime. And who owns Showtime? HBO. And who owns HBO? I've never progressed that far up the ladder. Because I, you know, I didn't know, so if Fox owned them, maybe they could do a crossover. I don't think the world is ready for that. As we all know, the first League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was anything but extraordinary. It was so bad that it ruined the career of everyone involved, including Sean Connery. Sean Connery... Was he on his way to retirement anyway? He was on his way, but that was the thing that pushed him over. Sean Connery survived Zardoz. <laughs> but he did not survive uh, the directors. Andrew Norton, I think? Who I did, think so. Who, who did the first play and was on the way to be a huge, huge, you know, big action director. And that tanked him. It was a movie that, in theory, could have worked yeah. and had, like, the right caliber of actors, but wow. Not for... Not everything for, about it went wrong. Yeah. And now, I'm not a big fan of the original comic. I thought it was a bit too self-congratulating and too much mm-hmm. Ellen Moore enjoying his library collection, yeah. but I could see what it was aiming for, and the movie didn't seem to know what it was doing other than, it's an Ellen Moore comic, those appear to be semi-popular, let's use them. I understand the impulse of let's try and get it right this time, but Alan Moore's comics seem to defeat the normal process. Yeah, because Alan Moore... Just don't do it. Yeah, Alan Moore comics are very comics-y. He's not just at his prime. He wasn't just a good writer. He was a good writer who was adept at using the medium properly. He wasn't just a storyteller who happened to fall into the comic medium. He was always, this is the medium in which I chose to work. This is my masterpiece, and I will use it to its fullest. That's why I thought Watchmen was such a bad movie, but it just couldn't work as an adaptation because it was such a comic book comic. It was a movie that's, to the extent that it succeeds at all, it succeeds because it cuts out, I'd say, three quarters of the complexity of the graphic novel, right? They don't really talk about the past, and they don't really go into the flashbacks. And they they can't do, you know, the strange symmetries, and they can't do... They have no replacement for the opening chapters... It's sort of like Spider-Man, right? Like, you want to believe that with the right amount of distance from the previous failures, if you were to try again, you might get it right. And then you could build on it going forward. But, but like you said... of Extraordinary Gentlemen, just don't do like it. Like you said, we have Penny Dreadful. Yeah. And it's like when the Fantastic Four movie came out, we had it. It's called The Incredibles. Mm-hmm. You don't need it. Speaking of which... Yeah, well, we might have The Incredibles too. It's one of those long... I'm ready. Well, it will take forever. You know, I don't be- care. 
Also, have you seen the last Breadbeard movie, Tomorrowland? I heard that it was terribly disappointing. It's, it's just terrible. You know, it's listen, terribly stupid. Breadbeard did other movies that were not as good as The Incredibles. Well, he yeah. also did The Iron Giant. So I don't know. With yeah. him, it seems to be like one day he's like this, the other no, day he's no, like No, no, no. I think all of his movies, aside from Tomorrowland, were at minimum good. I didn't care for Mission Impossible. Well, it's not great, but it's supremely directed. You know, it's, it's a showcase of insanity. Yeah. And, and I guess that's really the best thing yeah. to do in an existing the, the main problem I had with Tomorrowland, aside from it being stupid, and for that I blame the scriptwriter, Damon Lindelof. <laughs> oh, no! That it was... Are you kidding me? Damon Lindelof was the scriptwriter? Co-wrote it. No. With, well, there you go. Okay. No, the main there the main problem go. with it was... I'm it, not worried about it was, anymore. You remember <laughs> watching the Bradbeard filmography and having the strange, almost Ayn Randian feeling about it? Uh, the Selected Can Save Us? Oh. No. Yeah, Tomorrowland goes full gulch. Yeah. Literally, it's about a group of selected people hiding in another dimension from us, hoi polloi, and maybe they'll save us if we're nice enough. Pass. Yep. Damon Lindelof, like, that was yeah. all you needed to say. <laughs> now, speaking of things that'll give you a headache, Channing Tatum, who, I'm sorry, listeners, he is still Gambit, there's really nothing we can do about that. He had this to say about playing Remy LeBeau. He says, Gambit always felt the most real of the X-Men to me. He's kind of a tortured soul, and he's not a good guy, but he's not a bad guy either. He walks his own path. And of course he plays cards and drinks and is a martial arts badass. Glob, deliver us. That's like as deep as you could possibly get with Channing Tatum. If I I imagine it as his character from Jump Street 21, it works perfectly. (laughs) No! Well... What can you do with Gambit? It's simple. You know, do a heist movie, do a fun rom movie if they're doing the tortured anti-hero Gambit. Which it seems to be exactly what well, he's no, saying. Well, no, no, it's what he's saying. He's what he's saying. a tortured soul. He's spewing generic actor because he can't just say, well, I mean it for the fun times because he has to sound a bit clever. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't blame him. You know, the, some publicity wrote it for him saying, you know, say... That needs to be fired because this sounds really bad. And out really of the generic. cannon and into the sun. Ugh. Speaking of casting choices that make no sense and, like, you're just, what, what, why? There's a report going around that Jaden Smith has been cast as Static Shock. Now, here's the thing about that. Why? Tell me why. Uh, Please. I have not watched that After Earth movie, so I wouldn't know. It would be nice if they found an actor who had more than one facial expression. Karate Kid was pretty good. No, it wasn't. It was okay. Not really, no. He keeps having the same look of, like, I'm thinking about something else now. Did I leave the stove on in my office? I don't know. Maybe my trailer's on. Well, you know, it's the Smith family takeover of uh, the DC Universe. <laughs> and I don't begrudge them. Is Jedha's Pinkett Smith doing anything in the DC Universe? I think she was written out of Gotham recently. She was Fish Mooney. No, but is she doing something in their film universe? Or is it a film thing? Is it TV? Do we even know? We don't know. It was just mentioned that when Milestone came back, they said specifically that they were developing Static Shock. But they never said if it was for film so or ev- television. Almost every My guess mem- would be film, though, because Jaden Smith doesn't do TV. Almost every member of the Smith family is in the DCU. Only the... Uh, what's her name? Willow. Willow yeah. Smith. Give her a month. She'll turn up. She'll be Steele's niece, uh, Natasha Irons. Oh, my God. They'll do it. They could have done better. Like, for Static Shock, for a character that's so significant to Milestone, especially since they're coming back, this is supposed to be their opening shot, and it's Jaden Smith. You would think such a role would go to some unknown, you know, hungry young actor. Not to Jaden Smith, but... Or an actor who can look hungry. I, I don't know. 
I, I really don't know. Just like gently contemplative. <laughs> I don't know. We'll wait and see. Anyway. I'll wait and Moving see. on to TV news. Yes. So there were a series of trailers that came out over the yeah. last two weeks. There was Legends of Tomorrow. This is the Adam led spinoff for the CW, which features Ray Palmer, sorry. Uh, the Iron, the Iron, the Adam. Well, it's the Iron Adam the in Iron. that show because he's dressed. It really is. Yes, it's the it Iron. really. That's why my head immediately went to Iron Man. So there's also Hawkgirl, Rip Hunter, Time Traveler, Captain Cold, and Heatwave. Legends of Tomorrow. Okay. Say it like you mean it. Well, it's the not the name I'm... of a superhero TV show. It's the name of a 1950s variety show. No, but there was a 1980s, I think, or no, there was crossover a... that was called DC Legends. Well, there was a comic book, but, you know, there was also a comic book recently called G.I. Combat. I'm so just saying, just if, because they're rehearsing, comic... if they're reusing names, it's from their own Yeah, but it, sounds, it doesn't sound like a spinoff from a superhero show. It sounds like a, you're, you're reviving the Twilight Zone without the proper <laughs> name rights. <laughs> Maybe they're trying to get that Twilight Zone you audience. Know, if, maybe know. if every episode starts with the atom looking at you and like, I control the horizontal, I control the vertical. <laughs> I will say this, though, to be fair. Hot the... girl in, I married a reincarnated no, Egyptian. No, no, <laughs> And then she's like, I am a reincarnated Egyptian. No, but um, I will say this. The trailer was pretty good. It helps that I know for a fact that the writers on... Flash are going to be writing for Legends of Tomorrow 2. So it looks like the show's going to have that same lighter tone and not get dragged down like Arrow was. Because Arrow is just... <clears throat> I am just really... a tortured soul who can shrink. No, this is... The brilliant thing about casting Brandon Routh is that you would have assumed that he would have been like he was in Superman Returns. Just like straight face and... But no, he's actually funny as Ray Palmer. He was good in Scott Pilgrim. and I, He was. I like, don't know what he did between then and this. He did something... He was... He, he guest starred on Enlisted. He, he was a voice actor because I know he did voices on the Batman TV show. Sounds about right. But other than that... Anyway, so like, these are characters who, from the look of it, they seem to be having fun, right? And... If The Flash has succeeded in any respect, it's that it's a fun superhero show. Wait, wait. And Brandon Ralph was in Scott Pilgrim and yeah. Superman. He did voices in Batman and I was doing The Atom. Is he competing with Chris, Evan Captain Man. America? Yeah, on most comic book roles that one person can take. Oh, Is it a competition? Who's winning in that competition? Well, obviously Chris Evans because yeah. he was Captain America, the, the Human losers. Torch, the Losers. He was Casey Jones in the animated uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And he was and also, he was also in Scott right. Pilgrim. Okay, <laughs> Maybe there, that's when the competition started and like and now Stephen Amell's trying to catch up because you know he's going to be Casey Jones too okay that's interesting <laughs> uh, Supergirl there was now the pilot leaked after the trailer like, there was the trailer an extended was trailer like, thing which wasn't very good and then the episode came out well the standard trailer was like two minutes that seemed to sum up the entire first episode now here's the interesting thing the first episode leaked but there were no watermarks to indicate that, you know, it had been lifted from an official source, which has led some people to argue that CBS released it themselves. You know, the quote. Test the waters? Leak. Yes. And if so, there are sharks in those waters because, my God, it was so terrible. And I hate saying this because I was kind of hoping it would work. But the problem, it's crazy to say it because how often does this happen? But... They ended up bumping against the same obstacle that makes Supergirl in the comics such a difficult character to work with, which is that she is always in the shadow of someone who cannot appear in her story for fear of taking it over. Literally, the entire first episode is like, my cousin, 
my cousin Kal-El, my cousin, my cousin Superman. Have you heard about my cousin? So I have my cousin. It's just like over and over and over again. Constant references to a character who will not be appearing on this show. Your cousin is in another castle. That's what it is. Jim Olsen turns up. James Olsen, as he prefers to be known, which is fine, whatever. But it's like, oh, you know, I met your cousin in Metropolis. And Guys, it's the first episode. We know who Supergirl is. She has the shield on her chest. We can figure out that she's his cousin. You don't have to keep harping on that connection because if you were to bring Superman into this story, he would take it over because that has always been the dynamic between them. You remember there was a period when they wanted to bring the real Kara Zor-El back. This was Jeff Loeb, right? Yeah. And she basically got bounced around the entire multiverse, every author under the sun, trying to figure out what to do with her. And she became a Red Lantern, and then she worked for Doomsday, and then she worked for Darkseid, and then she, would, she did this, she did that, and she went to the Legion. And they never figured out, I think to this day, they've never really figured out what to I, do with yeah. her. Yeah. And as, as, she, as a solo character. And that's different from, say, Batgirl, right? Batgirl can have her own independent existence because she is not family. She's not, like, the little cousin. She's not the little sister, the little sidekick. She does her own thing. Really, even Robin, when you think about it, like, Damian Wayne or Tim Drake or, or even back in the day, like Jason Todd, whatever, they could have their own adventures and be somewhat perceived. Maybe as- it's because characters can distance themselves from Batman in universe because everybody can say, well, I'm a bit tired of being with him. Right. I'll do my own thing. And with Superman, you can't her- have her say, well, Superman is a jerk. I'm going away because nobody would buy. Oh, Superman is being yeah. a jerk. It raises so many question marks. Like, okay, so they have acknowledged that this show is not related to Man of Steel. You can tell that by the fact that Metropolis exists. And is not a crater, but and their first preseason, everybody's going. <laughs> oh my God, Ron! It's another one. So it's meant to be its own thing, which is fine. But that also means that Superman is around, and presumably up until this point, he still thinks he's the last son of Krypton, right? He's alone, and she is also like alone, and well, she I doesn't have any family. Well, I'm not going to spoil, but anyway. I haven't watched it. Okay, so. I won't spoil, but let's just say there's some complications there. But anyway. There is no reason for her not to reach out to him, except for the fact that this show is called Supergirl, and she will not be able to establish herself in the shadow of Superman. It's this paradox of invoke his name to keep people interested, but don't actually have him there, because then he's going to be the one everyone wants well, to watch. Well, Supergirl as a character is still waiting for someone who would do her properly. Right. Uh, you can do it. I don't think there's such a thing as a, as Lamed is to say, a bad character. There's just a Not character. Not a bad character, but a bad character interpretation. Yeah. And the problem is that... Nobody seems to have the magic touch yet. Right. The closest that I can remember to Supergirl having like a viable long-term identity was when Peter David was doing that. But then he did every possible tactic to, to keep her away from, from her. She's an angel of God. She's and doing de- And then it she's became an his Fallen Angel series for IDW. It was so... Unofficially. Dis- yeah, it was so distant that he could actually transform it into another company and another right. character. And everybody was like, yeah, that's a proper continuation. It's too bad that he ended up retconning that for legal reasons. But yeah. like that was obviously the intent. I really enjoyed, you know, her short, short appearance on Brian Q. Miller's uh, Bad Girl one. She had one issue where to, whether to add, you know, the girls' night out thing and it was charming she because... She was great in, in the animated series. series. Yeah. He played her as sort of a she's so perfect that she's supposed to be annoying but she's so charming that nobody's annoyed. Yeah. And it's almost like all-star Supergirl because, you know, she's smart and she's nice and she's like, oh, I just want to help you. And Bad Girl's like, I really should hate you, <laughs> but I can't. Yeah. Damn it, I can't. This is where Jeff Loeb went wrong. He designed her as being stronger than Superman. Like, the idea at the time was supposed to be that she would overshadow no, that, him through ability. That's the Jeff Loeb thing of everybody's... Then, uh, his character arc... He acted like an idiot. 
his characters for the longest time have always been oh I'm the strongest it's all because Red Hulk comes in and he's the strongest and Supergirl mm-hmm. comes in and she's the strongest and he's the it's like a 13 year old boy writing it and I'm not surprised My because better than yours and I'm not surprised because Jeff Lowe wrote Commando <laughs> oh no you had to go and dig that up well it's a great movie but <laughs> it's a thing that exists in any event the episode just really wasn't very good I hope it finds its pace but a lot of the fears that people had when they announced the show and when they announced the casting Kalisa Flockhart plays Cat Grant like something out of the devil there's Prada. a name I haven't heard in a while Ellie McBeal herself believe it or not and still looking scary and the crazy thing is that Laura Benanti is in this and she outshines Melissa Benoit in every possible way and I kind of wish that she had, she's older but mm-hmm. I really wish that she had been Supergirl because she could have at least added some weight and gravity to her performance. But it was just... Ugh. Unhappier TV news. The Lucifer trailer. <laughs> I, I'm really happy about I it. I was aiming for something else. <laughs> I know. But I'm really because? happy about the Lucifer trailer because it's rare that we are 100% right. Like, we're fallible people. Sometimes we make mistakes. But... When we talked about, like, the idea of Lucifer as a police procedural... They Satan, fight crime. They fight crime. And we were right. They went there. Every single thing about this trailer for I, Lucifer was exactly what we said it was. I be. hope they paid Mike Carey enough money because he has to... I hope uh, they paid John Milton some money. Like, <laughs> drop some libations on Because he has a lot of tears to clean up. He's looking at this and I'm like, my name will be tainted forevermore. Will it, though? Because what I'm wondering Well, is, maybe they won't put it on the opening credit. It's like the reverse Wallywood and Daredevil, where his family is asking, you know, please put him there. My right. Carrie is calling them and like, yo, uh, it's nice that you pay me money. Please don't put my name there. No, but I the beg of you, use someone else. What I'm Ellen Moore is open. Lucifer, technically, is not a Vertigo trademark, right? They're talking about Satan. Yeah. So unless they explicitly use characters who were from either Neil Gaiman's original, like, you know, Season of Mist and, and all of that, or from Carrie's run, which I don't think they have, because they haven't announced, like, they're casting Mazikeen or, or Lilith. And even Lilith is, like, the biblical Lilith. Yeah. This is a situation where I'm hoping they actually do step away and not give him his rights, because then, no, it's just, it's the other Lucifer. Well, it's not yours. Well, I'm hoping Mike Carey gets some money, because, you know, he deserves it. He deserves money in general, but not for this. Like, he should not be accepting anything for this, because... I well, th- I'm sorry, Sean. If someone would offer me money for turning my good idea into a crappy TV show, I would take and say, I would count my blessings, and by but blessings I mean would cash. screw you over. Like, if you had written something about Noah... <laughs> and be like, well, you don't trademark Noah. You don't own Noah. We can do with Noah whatever we want. Police procedural is no so Satan, far crime from fighters. what Lucifer is. Like the Vertigo series is not a police procedural in any way, so you're shape, ima- or form. So you're imagining a Noah Lucifer team up? Why not? And they flood would too. And Electric they, flooding. And they would lead the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Ew, it all or they would around. fight the league. Yes. In happier TV news. Actual. And this is actually happy news. Like, hallelujah happy news. Agent Carter has been renewed. It wasn't a sure thing. No. The first season, I really enjoyed it. Had its flaws, sure. But, I mean, compared to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> and it has been expanded to ten episodes, which, you know, praise Glob. I'm really looking forward to it. They're moving to Los Angeles instead of New York. Establish your own identity because yeah. they have Daredevil in New York now. And assume, and I assume all of the Defenders. Well, it's 50 years apart, though. Well, yeah, but they want to change locations a bit, maybe. Okay, yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm really looking forward to it. 
Oh boy, this one. Okay, so, Jill Lepore. Author of The Secret History of Wonder Woman. Yeah. And a New Yorker writer. A professor of American history at Harvard University. And there's a reason that I'm saying it like this, because, wow. Okay. She embarrassed herself big time in a New Yorker op-ed piece that talked about A-Force, which we'll be reviewing later. A-Force number one from Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which we'll be reviewing later on in the episode. Now, I don't know Jill Lepore extensively. Like, I've heard of her, obviously. But I can tell you this much. That a professor of her status would fail to do the thing, the most basic thing that all academics are trained to do. You and I are both trained academics, and we know. Rule number one, do your research. The fact that she was not saying anything new, that she was making arguments we've heard on Fox News for 50 years. I'm surprised Frederick Wortham didn't come flying out of her mouth and like start moving the furniture around. She called them pervy characters. She was apparently under the impression that Thor became a woman, and I'm using quotation marks here, and that Captain America became black as if the notion of an identity passing from one character to another was completely foreign to her. I was astonished. I took more issue with the odd use in her article of I gave it to my 10-year-old son because it's such an obvious ploy because what would she have done if one of the kid because she had two kids in the article mm-hmm. her son and his friend or something and what would she have done if some one of them would l- liked it because her <laughs> because her major point was even kids don't like it and it's supposed to be for kids we're already it's it's a bad piece it's it's one of those you know learn uh, your uh, history no no professor. no 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 with this i disagree and that no because the perception that comics should be for kids and that you can give a force number 1 to two 10 year olds and the fact that they giggle over boobies is like a revelation this is again this is not new you're talking about things from that the perception... au- again from the author of the secret history of wonder woman i don't even want to know in the op-ed piece, she does start talking about Mars. Yeah, I, I, I'm, actually, I'm actually, I'm actually seventy years ago. I'm comics a, have moved. I'm actually out. listening to the audiobook, you know, Ugh. before we recorded not all of it. And well, it's not about modern Wonder Woman. It is actually about you know uh, Wortham and Masterson and the process of creation and the history of the creators of Wonder Woman, rather than the Great. modern Avengers. But then she is yeah. writing an op-ed piece based on a contemporary work that is coming out in 2015. Now, granted, yes, the comics industry has a long way to go when it comes to representations of women, when it comes to sexism. Absolutely true. But you cannot be repeating arguments that were made in the 1950s and expect that these standards still apply to books today. She was talking about, like, the most basic things. One of the the kids tells her that Captain America is black now. She doesn't assume that it's a different character. She's like, oh, that must be a different discussion altogether. He just turned black. No! No! Not at all. And if you lack that kind of basic comprehension of the genre, that you don't even do the the most now, essential reading, what on earth are you doing? N- now, G. Willow Wilson has responded. She wasn't the first. Yeah. Leia Calderon responded first. Now, Calderon's response was measured and calm. And, you know, she really pointed out the problem that Lepore was basing her entire judgment of these characters based on one artistic representation. As if George Molina's artwork is how the characters appear everywhere. That's not even true, like, in the context of comics that are coming out today. There are different artists who draw these characters differently. She should have taken a look at Javier Polito's uh, She-Hulk. Let's see what she says then, right? So, that's one thing. 
She also pointed out the unfortunate fact that Lepore was basically dismissing these female characters as, you know, just die staff counterparts of men. Which, She-Hulk is nothing like the Hulk. No. Nothing. She has never been written like... Well, her first five issue was that In the 60s, sure. But, like, when you talk about She-Hulk as she's perceived today, right? Sort of the way that John Byrne popularized her. Nothing at all like the male template. So why would you even assume... Like, you just dismiss everything that was ever done with the character just because her name is a derivative of a male character. The mind boggles. Now, there have been a lot of angry responses from comic book fans, from comic book infield critics, from creators, including G. Willow Wilson. I'm just as an academic because it's like, know what you're talking about before you start talking. But as angry I am at her not well-written article, and I'm using, you know, the slightest terms, not (laughs) well-written, some of the responses have been over the top yes. and their selves disingenuous. You know, G. Will Wilson saying, well, if you've only read uh, Secret Wars and knew what we're talking about, no, 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 yeah. no. You're, you're, she touted you're, the company line. Yeah, you're writing something called A-Force number one, not mm. Secret Wars 3.5. You do not need to give nerd homework. I can understand the angry tone because, again, like as fans of comics, we have been putting up with this crap. And uh, another thing, I'm aware of, you know, comic book problems with representation of women. You're aware, G. Willow Wilson awares. The problem is she sort of assumes everybody has to be aware at the same time and they have to respect her advances from the insider's point of view. And imagine her response if somebody told her, well, this computer game which features a character without any clothes is much more advanced than, I don't know, Another computer game which features character without any clothes who doesn't have any agency. Saying if you judge it within the context, it's okay, but if you judge it in front of the whole, it's bad, is basically saying, well, it's bad, but it could have been worse. Hmm. I'm sorry who because. made that argument though? G. Will Wilson made it. You know, if she, in her article, in her response, she was, well, when you consider what I did and when you consider what we, we women creators did and how we advanced. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't have any problem with that, but saying, it's only okay in context. He's basically saying, well, it's not okay. Well, what she's saying is that, again, like the part about if doing, someone, doing your nerd homework, if someone, that I didn't agree now, with. If, if you put out an issue, that issue will be judged. If someone who never read a comic book, if uh, an adult woman who never read a, a Marvel comic book in her life picked up A-Force number one and said, well, I don't like this representation. I don't like the fact that all of them are, you know, model looking. I don't like the revealing clothing. You can't just tell her, well, it's okay because in, you know, in the 1990s, it was even worse. That's not a great defense. But on the other hand, if you were a layman and you picked up this comic and you were justifiably angry about how it appeared, that would be one thing. Yeah. The anger towards Jill Lepore specifically is because it as, was, it as was, a Harvard professor. It was a calculated, she was doing the calculated insult thing. Yeah. It, she's punching down and who, like, no. you know, yeah. Punching be, down at who? Because the gist of the article is that same kind of calculated highbrow dismissal of mm. going back to the idea that comics are juvenile crap. Now, yes. God knows that right now, Marvel are not at the peak of ideal maturity. That is certainly true. But on the other hand, if you are going to make, from an academic perspective, like if you are positioning yourself as a historian, as someone who has written the secret history of Wonder Woman, and who knows all of these facts, you would think that you would show some kind of larger understanding than committing all of these faux pas in the New Yorker, of all places. 
Like, this wasn't some layman walking into Walmart and picking up an issue of, I don't even know. Bloodstrike. Bloodstrike. And saying, I don't like it. It's like, no, this was someone who, you would think that the default position would be, check the background, see what else is going on, make arguments in context. I I don't think she has to check the background. My problem, again, what was with her writing style, which is very... I like the New Yorker under big pieces when they do in-depth investigation. Their cultural things, whenever they review movies or TV shows, is a bit obvious. It's almost like a self-caricature of, I'm wearing uh, the monocle and, you know, all these hoi, all these people, you know, watching their silly little movies and not reading proper novels about men in their Anui. They're looking like Mr. Moneybags from Monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Uh. So, let's move on to some actual comics news. Uh, okay. So DC has a new marketing plan. It's called DCU. Y-O-U. Ain't that clever. Unfortunately, they've been foregrounding this by showing off some of the creative decisions that they made for the June... Yeah, solicit... Un-relaunch or re-unlaunch. I don't even know what you would call it. Divergence. Uh, so bad Pokemon is there. Yeah. Um... And it's Jim Gordon. Turned out to have been Jim Gordon, which was another thing we didn't yeah. need. You know, um, I'm okay with it. I- I'm interested. Everyone else had a turn, so why not Jim Gordon? <laughs> like at this point, the only people who haven't put on the bat suit are the Joker. No, actually, the Joker has Harley Quinn and Jim Gordon. So sure, give it to Jim Gordon. The now, the Superman thing with the glasses come up. Yeah, that was. They're, I can't. They're killing off Clark Kent. So I can't saying. imagine uh, Gwen Long Young. Doing that, it literally boggles the mind that he would do it. So I imagine it's some publicity thing. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. The thing that made me smile was that immediately after DC launched this campaign, Marvel started announcing their post-Secret Wars plans, which is that the entire Marvel Universe will skip ahead eight months. (laughs) So they're literally doing Infinite Crisis and one year later now, right? Like, there's no illusion anymore that Marvel is just... So wait, wait, what's what's the name of the fill-in uh, one-year miniseries? No! 40, 46? Countdown to Annihilation. No, no, it would be four, how many weeks? 46? 44? Oh, no, no. Marvel 44 featuring Jonathan Hickman, Brian Michael Bendis, ah, no. and Mark Wade for the crossover appeal. I can't, I can't handle it. The only comfort I have there is that I know with absolute certainty that they're using that gap in order to sweep Secret Wars under the rug and resume books that they were already writing? That would be my guess. Okay. One last thing. Just because I find it amusing. DC is challenging fabulous pop star Rihanna over copyright of her own That's name, her actual name Robin. now? Fabulous pop star Rihanna? I think so. That's because a- it sounds like an anime title. <laughs> <laughs> I assume I, that when I she comes watch- on stage, like, you know, her clothes start glowing. I would the- watch every single episode of fabulous, fabulous pop star Rihanna. Rihanna. <laughs> and that's the name of this podcast. Kawaii! So... She wants to put out a magazine called Robin, which is her first name. With a Y. With a Y. R-O-B-Y-N. And DC is challenging her for that trademark under the assumption that people might get confused between a comic book about a teenage vigilante who is illustrated and a swimsuit magazine by fabulous pop star Rihanna. (laughs) And I can see how you could make that mistake. Like, if someone were to tell you, Tom, I'd like you to set aside an issue of Robin for me, you might just go... Shall we review Robin number one? (laughs) (laughs) They will review... And here's the thing. DC doesn't even publish a title called Robin because their Robin title, their upcoming Robin title is We We Are dot 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 
Robin, which is even harder to confuse. Yeah. So they shot themselves in the leg with that <laughs> argument. Oh, God. Oh, boy. Shall we do the previews? Yes, previews for August. Swiftly now, swiftly. Marvel. Well, luckily, we're in the doldrums of the summer period, so really there's not a lot. Marvel is still deep in the Secret Wars. Oh, my God. Which means, but they're so deep that they're actually having fun with it, because, for instance... This month sees Secret Wars, Secret Love Number One, <laughs> written by Michael Fifth, Philippe Smith, Margaret Bennett, Jeremy Whiteley, and Katie Cook, a one-shot about secret loves in the Secret Wars universe, and the cover features Kamala Khan in this classic uh, romantic cover pastiche. Why did he notice me? With Robbie Reyes in the background. Yeah, that's amazing. <sighs> Stupid. Stupidly amazing, but amazing nonetheless. It's just exhausting. To read the previews now. Yeah. I can't even imagine what actually reading the damn thing must be like. Uh, I'll tell you when I finish. Oh, I do it after you're all. You're doing the whole thing? You're reading all the Secret Wars? No, no, no. Not all Secret Wars. No, I mean, like, can you imagine what it must be like reading the entire thing? No, I mean, just reading the previews, I was like, my eyes started rolling in the back of my head. I don't think there's many people who can afford it because... Reading the whole of it must be like a thousand dollars. There's I wouldn't be dozens of titles, go- you know, ongoing miniseries... You don't have the time or the money. Who has it? And if you have it, you should invest. Find something better to do with your money. Yes. Your choice? Well, Scotty Young and Jim Moffat are putting out a one-shot. Howard the Human. Scotty Young's good. Jim Moffat, good. Is he doing anything lately, Jim Moffat? Yeah, he's doing the Miami Vice remix for W with Joe Casey. Which I haven't read yet. I just browsed it. The art is spectacular. There's also a Hank Johnson, Agent of Hydra one shot. From someone called David Mandel and Michael Walsh. Well, Michael Walsh I know. I don't know who David... I could see sort of a domestic comedy. It's supposed to be a domestic comedy where the main star is, you know, a Hydra. And so he takes the kids. He goes to the office. He tries to take over the world. Hmm. I could see it. Didn't they do that once with, like, Bob? They had Bob, Agent of Hydra, but he was a supporting character in Deadpool. That's, uh... As a one-shot? Yeah, why not? I guess. I mean, like, now they're just putting out disposable one-shots, so I don't even... Mm. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have been waiting for this, and so should have you. Next Wave Agents of Hate is collected again after oh. being out of print for forever and ever. Okay. Uh, the War in L.A. Stuart Eminem classic? Yeah. No. Yes, no. yes, yes. I mean, classic depending on whether or not you read it, because <laughs> it was not widely... Shame, shame. Yeah. It's uh, 12 issues, $35, which for Marvel is perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. it's appropriate. It's Warren Ellis's legendarily iconoclastic interpretation of superheroes, which if you've ever read a Warren Ellis comic, you probably can guess what he has to say about superheroes. And he makes that point repeatedly... And at the expense of pretty much but everyone But what's else. surprising is that it actually worked and all of these characters, this version of them became popular because nobody cared about Boom Boom or Machine Man for a long, long time. And ever since that, whenever Machine Man shows up, it's not Kirby's Machine Man, it's Warren Ellis' crazy killer robot, damn you fleshling Machine Man. Right. It was supposed to be an out-of-continuity series filled with, you know, jokes about the Marvel Universe. And it's now in continuity I'm from popular... Sure they, they turned up afterwards. Yeah, they turned up in uh, L. Ewing's Mighty Avengers. You have uh, Monica Rambeau showing up and start cursing in the middle of one scene. Those crazy <laughs> mind wipes in the lost year and fighting dragons and why? Why? <laughs> well, listen, good for him. Like A lot okay. of people enjoyed it when it came out. So uh, DC Comics. Cool. Yes. I really only have two points well, of interest start? here. Hmm. I'm not sure what to think about this. DC Comics Bombshells, number one. 
Written by Marguerite Bennett, art by Marguerite Savage. Now, I wonder if they planned that. Uh, maybe? Double Margarita. But, um... <laughs> if that's the title of the first, <laughs> if the first issues... Well, the first issue. Apparently, it's an ongoing. Now, this is what I don't understand. It's an ongoing comic based on a toy line that re-envisions DC's female superheroes as World War II combatants. Well, they did before. You know, the Ami Comic Girl thing was just a toy line, and it was popular enough to justify a short comic book it series. It was short, though. Yeah, like the, the comic didn't sell. No, but the toys apparently did. Yeah, so I'm not sure, like, is this a promotional thing or an ongoing? Or, I don't Synergy! Know. For the first issue, they're doing Batwoman, Wonder Woman, and Supergirl, which is the female trinity. Yeah, like, it's a fun... Marguerite Bennett is a decent writer. It's a fun design. I understood that it's very popular for cosplayers, mm-hmm. because you would assume. Sure. You know, with all the details and the, the opportunity to, you know re-envision these classic characters in a more historical setting. That makes sense. But as an actual ongoing? Eh. Justice League Gods and Monsters number one, written by James DeMatteis and Bruce Team. Speaking of spin-offs, mm-hmm. so that's a comic book version of the Bruce Team uh, incoming feature-length uh, animated movie about uh, revision Justice League, which in which Batman is a vampire and you need a everything is dark. For this, I think. Well, according- it's a comic book of a movie of a comic book. <laughs> well, no, according to the solicitations, what's going on here is that these are three one shots that are coming out all in June, and they're three ninety nine each. So, mm. but, but they're forty pages. Of comic. They're forty pages. Now the thing is, it's meant to be a prequel to the film. Oh, so. What I would recommend for people who might be interested in this, because I've always had time for, like, dark and twisted versions of the Justice League. Of all the animated films post-Tim and Dini, really the only one I'm willing to claim is A Crisis on Infinite, on Two Earths, and even then it wasn't that good. But anyway, I would suggest seeing the movie first, and if it holds up, then maybe looking at the one-shots. Because yeah. these are all meant to be character pieces filling in the backstory of Kirk Langstrom as Vampire Batman... Aresia, I think, as Wonder Woman, and the son of Zod as Superman. Sure. Uh, the Multiversity is collected. The Multiversity Deluxe Edition hardcover, $50, almost 500 pages. I still don't care. Uh, yeah, it's ended up on a bit of a sad note for me. No! Why is that? I I like some of the one-shots. Mm-hmm. I still hold that Pax Americana and Shazam are two of the best comics we had last year. But the whole package... Yes. Just didn't, didn't held up. Vindication! Yes. Uh, uh, something that will hold up. Graphic Ink, the DC comic art of Darwin Cook hardcover. Oh. And that's, that's all that you need to hear. How much? Uh, 40 bucks, like all You're the... You're getting it, aren't you? Um, you maybe. You've already cleared space on your shelf. I'm not sure because I, I think I have most of this stuff in, you know, actual comics because it's a lot of, you know, art pieces and character pieces that you ah. did before. They're probably going to include the covers that he did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, including talent showcase number 19, his first appearance apparently in the DCU, Batman Gotham Knight, Legion Worlds, that I don't know, JSA All-Stars, Jonah X. I don't have a lot of this stuff apparently, so damn it. (laughs) Ka-ching. Anything else from DC? I got nothing else from DC. Do you have anything else? Get Jiro uh, Blood and Sushi Hardcover. That's the... Sequel uh, graphic novel for Gejiro 1 by uh, Anthony Bourdain. Yes, the famous chef. The chef? Yes. He wrote a graphic novel for... Who's DC- Jiro and why does Anthony Bourdain want to get him? <laughs> uh, Jiro is a fighting chef. 
he's he's a chef that kills people. Okay. In sort of a comedy future world. I haven't read the first one. A few so of my he's Anthony f- Chu, basically. <laughs> a few of my friends read it, and they said it's great. So <laughs> I, okay. I, I'll read the first one, and then maybe. Uh, image? Image. So there are some delightful number ones and some unclear decisions here. Again, like just things you that start? I don't understand. King Tiger, number one. This is a four-issue miniseries by Randy Stradley and Doug Wheatley. Now, I think I'm missing something here, because I've read the solicitation text three times. I have no times, idea what's going and on. I don't know. The way that it's worded makes it seem kind of racist, like, if the tiger falls, the dragon will rise. Uh, and does it not read like it's a continuation of something? Yes, yes. But I, I read my, it at first I thought, is this a sequel to Tiger Lawyer? But it can't be. Is it a Sabertooth Swordsman spinoff? I don't... I have no idea. I don't know what this is. I cannot recommend it one way or another. Phonogram, The Immaterial Girl, number one, mm-hmm. by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. Well, they're back. Yep. The magic and music series is continuing, and I enjoyed the first two, not to the degree that a lot of other people enjoy them, mostly because Gillen's musical taste is not my musical taste. <laughs> Maybe if The Immaterial Girl is a heavy metal thing. I don't know. The whole issue is about... Yes. With that title, I seriously doubt it. Maybe the whole series is a pen for Scandinavian black metal and Bay Aryan 80s trash. I'll believe that when I see it, and not before. Dark Corridor number one. This is by Rich Tommaso. Who? Exactly. Uh, The premise is basically a world controlled by mobsters, but these mobsters are fighting female assassins. Okay. Okay. That sounds like an interesting That's a premise. random generator buzzword thing? It is, but it's the sort of thing where, like, that's worth a look. In the interesting edition, the mm. surface is collected, oh. and it's not volume one. It's just the surface issues one to four fifteen dollars. I thought it was supposed to be an ongoing. I was under the impression that the surface is an ongoing. It is an ongoing. No, but if it's collected like this as simply the surface... Four issues. Four issues is not an ongoing. That's a mini-series. I remember it being solicited as a... He's doing it for as long as it takes. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I I also distinctly remember it being an ongoing. But I think that this is just no maybe, because they're not saying volume, not volume one. Maybe it's a title. And all of the volume ones in Image always cost ten dollars. This is fifteen, which is the price they do when something doesn't have a continuation, with, where it's one volume and that's it. But if the surface had been canceled or abbreviated into a four issue miniseries, I'm assuming they would have announced it. That May- seems very Maybe strange. it's intended from the from the beginning to be four issues. And no, it- no, because I remember when it was announced at Image Expo, they specifically said that it was an ongoing. That's just that's strange. Very weird. Uh, anything else from Image? Actually, quite a few. So, Eight House Kiem Number Three. This is by Brandon Graham and Oh, the numbering. Sure Show G Penalta. Now I figured out that it took me a minute to figure out the numbering, but here's basically the way that it works: is that this is a continuation of. Eight House. This is one Eight House number three, but it's part one of Kiem because Arcadia was issue two and, and one. Why? Why, dear Mister Graham? I like. I would you. like to follow Eight House. Please don't make it too complicated. I'm coming to Image to get away from Marvel. Don't throw me back into the deep. So end. next month is Eight House number three and a half. <laughs> oh no, Eight House number zero. Here's something you're probably celebrating. Yeah. Morning Glories has reached issue 50. It's Am the I? end of season 2, the 5th anniversary, and still... No How many reason. seasons can we await? Lost lasted for 7 seasons, you know. So that means... <laughs> 75, <laughs> to go. 75 issues more. Are you ready for it? No, and I'm not <laughs> sure anybody's ready for it. 
Wow. There was one other number one that seemed interesting. It's The Beauty Number One by Jeremy Hahn and Jason Hurley. That's a pilot season uh, thing that's... Revived. I thought they stopped that. But. I thought so too because I don't remember the last one that they put out was the one about the girl who's like this tactical genius and she leads gangs. In genius, right? For- genius. That was the one. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so this story posits that outward beauty and physical perfection is a sexually transmitted disease. Uh, what? Yeah. Like you get an STD, you become beautiful. Interesting premise, right? Image premise. So Image premise? That's a Philip K. Dick premise. <laughs> so I will be checking that out. That sounds very interesting. Uh, Dark Horse? Dark Horse. Another series concluding. Which one? Mind Management. Oh, right, right. That's uh, it, coming to an end. I really should sit down and read the whole thing. I tried. Can't say I read, Reading it monthly took it out of me. It's too dense mm. it's a very intellectual series it's not very you know heavy in the emotional advancement for very, me it's also very heavy to read like just ugh. i think i think it would read better in collections so maybe i'll try that speaking of collections that's that's been oh, here we go yeah the big guy and rusty the boy robot oh, that's hardcover not, that's not the collection oh. i you were going for no no <laughs> uh frank miller and jeff darrow no it's the first time that this thing is collected in hardcover mm-hmm what size it is because it doesn't say the size and the original collection is very big because it's a Jeff Darrow art showcase. Right. And also it's recolored by Dave Stewart which is good. Mm. And it includes and that's to annoy everybody who doesn't buy Dark Horse Presents it includes the Jeff Darrow Big Guy and Rusty short story from Dark Horse Presents number one the recent relaunch. So if you're one of the people who doesn't buy Dark Horse Presents, you would probably have to buy this again. Yeah. Well, no, no, you wouldn't. Because the short story isn't... It's a good short story. It's not worth paying for a collection again. But it's not again. essential. Yeah, it's basically... It's a joke. It's a joke about Jeff oh. Darrow doing the compression thing. Big guy fights some monster and Rusty's just telling the audience to move along. And nobody moves along. Oh. Yeah, it's it's a funny joke because it's the kind of gags Jeff Darrow does well. But it's not, not worth $20. No. no. Uh, a few interesting miniseries from Dark Horse. This Damned Band. Oh, yeah. Yep. By Paul Cornell and Tony Parker. Combining black magic and classic rock. So if you didn't like the the phonogram D material girl, here's the <laughs> here's the alternative you were looking for. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, my also, series. This is like this is vindication for all those people who used to think that if you played the Beatles record backwards that you would hear them like saying Hail Satan or something. So now apparently it's true. I like Paul Cornell. I really I do. do. Too. He's so he in his writing at Marvel. He was completely wasted. I I didn't think MI13 was a waste of anything. I thought it was a glorious didn't series. Last, so no, no, but Dracula shooting vampires at Earth from the <laughs> moon. moon. Yes. Uh, there's also Zodiac Star Force. The miniseries, which is a Western uh, magical girl thing. Some kind of magical girls versus mean girls. It's by Kevin Panetta and Paulina Ganusa. The art looks great. The preview, The preview design. But we're getting power up a month before. Yeah. It's going to be a competition. Sure. Well, I mean, Kate Leth mo- is Kate Leth. Yeah. Right? There's no competition per se, but... Okay. I'll can the, can the American market sustain two ongoing magical ser- girl series? I guess yes. we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Maybe it will be like when Wayward and uh, Hexed came out at the same time, and one of them turned out to be very good, and one of them turned out to be Wayward. And the one that was very good ended up being canceled. Damn you! Oh. Or ending. Okay, I'm not. Gonna uh, say Sherlock Holmes and the Necronomicon hardcover by someone called Sylvia Coudre and someone just called Lassie. L A. Yeah. It's a European thing that's translated to English, and it's apparently a continuation to something called Sherlock Holmes and the Vampires of London. 
Is this a humanoids thing? It's just a European thing. Uh, huh. Well, Sherlock Holmes works in crossovers surprisingly well oh, yeah. with just about oh, yeah. anything. You can plug Sherlock Holmes into anything and it works. You can turn up on Eternia and be like elementary. On, on, on the other hand, I've read the Sherlock Holmes myth Cthulhu thing like five times by now, mostly in novel or short story forms. But you're talking about uh, Emerald. Well, that's the main one, the Neil Gaiman's Emerald. Um, Studying Emerald. Study in Emerald, but uh, there's a book called The Strange Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which is a collection of oh, short yes. story of Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. pastiches. And like the weird pastiches. Yes, yes, and a lot of them are Cthulhu. Yeah. Everybody likes the Cthulhu. Well, you know, it's the ultimate clash between the person who can deduce anything and the undeducible. Undeducible. Right? can never know. The undeducible Cthulhu is a good superhero title. There you go. Uh, Prometheus, the complete fire and stone hardcover. That's a collection of, in hardcover of all the Dark Horse miniseries of the recent fire and stone thing, which is... This is a Hellboy thing. No, 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 no. It's a Predator fire and stone, Alien fire and stone, Prometheus fire and stone, and Alien... Oh, that Pre- Prometheus. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, not Iron um, Prometheus. Not oh, the Hellboy thing. Okay, okay. Uh, Kelly Sudeconic, <laughs> Paul Tobin, Chris Robinson, Christopher Sabella, Joshua Williamson, Joanne Ferreira, Patrick Reynolds... Dan Brown, uh, Ariel Olvedi, Chris Muniam. It's a good creative team. Some of them. Not bad. $50, 480 pages. I'm not a big fan of these franchises, so I won't be seeing that one out. No, I'm not a fan of Dark Horse's particular interpretation yeah. of these franchises, so... No thanks. No Predator, but the Schwarzenegger Predator for me. <laughs> Anything else from Dark Horse? Well, there is one thing. Yes. But I would like for you to talk about it because really I feel that it's closer to your heart than it is. Oh mine. damn! I completely forgot about it. The fact that you forgot about it astonishes me because that was like as soon as it's, I saw it's it, the like, literal elephant in the room because it's the size and weight of an elephant. Tom, I okay, would okay. like you to tell our listeners. Okay, about so this Dark Horse is releasing thing. a hardcover, yes, which costs only thirty dollars, which includes over one thousand pages of comics and has the talents of Team Sealy. Stephen Grant, Phil White, Robert Kirkman, Michael Helpering, Scott Nichol, Bruce Tim, and Max Textiera. And it's He-Man and the Masters of the Universe mini comic collection. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. You need. Hey, yeah, I I assume yeah. that if you buy this, you have to lift this thing above your head and yell, "I have the power." <laughs> And then you're transformed <laughs> into someone who would actually read it. Oh no! You need to someone be human. Actually, lift it over your head. You need to be human to read this. Thing. Wow! I mean, I'm just, where did this even come from? I'm just amazed because how cheap could it be to produce over one thousand pages for thirty dollars? How is this even? Po- is that it, is that a mistake? Probably doesn't bode well for the quality of the actual hardcover. Uh, maybe it's a mistake. I can almost assume, like you know, fifty dollars. pages. Yeah, fifty dollars, maybe. And that's the lowest that I can think of. And it's color. It's not black and white. At 30, I'm just assuming people are going to buy it just for the hell of it. Yeah, you know, to throw at other people. Maybe it's 1,200 pages, but like every page is half of a hardcover page. That would be odd looking, like a tiny flip book. Because I never saw these mini comics. What do they look like? Are we talking like sequential panels? Are we talking a line, horizontal, vertical? I I think it's a four square thing. Oh. Maybe they're putting some of them on the same page. How many of them Even are there? Fifty percent. That's six hundred pages. Yes. How many of them are there? That's an odd list. I, wow. I, you know, Bruce Tim. Okay, it's one of his earliest works. Fine. And he, Team Silly. Dark Horse doesn't hold the license for He Man, right? Uh, DC, DC does. Bo- well, but they're uh, putting out like ma- yeah, Masters of, of the Universe. Or something. 
Yeah, but a lot of time, Dark Horse or IDW would publish old collections of stuff that DC and Marvel right. owns because who's doing the Marvel Dailies thing, the hardcover right, collection? Right. That's IDW. That's okay. But some of those names, Robert Kirkman? Wasn't he like 10 when this stuff aired? He, he's our age, I <laughs> that assume. That would be the point, I'm guessing. What, did they send him some fan fiction and they published it? That's how Kurt Busiek got started. Yeah. Uh, boom! Boom. Has two interesting number ones that I would like to know more about. So the first one is Welcome Back Number One. We already mentioned Christopher Savella. Wait, He's wait, wait. Back. It's we, open brackets, LL. I'm not close playing that game. Come back. I'm not E.E. E. Cummings. I'm not going to start parsing where the parentheses go. This book is called Welcome Back, and that's what I'm going to call it. Anyway, <laughs> Christopher Savella and Jonathan Brandon Sawyer. So reincarnated female assassins fighting and loving each other over and over and over again. Okay, sounds interesting. Like, it's one of those boom comics that seems completely crazy. Like, if you were to describe the plot of the Midas Flesh to someone, that's what it would sound like. I sort of imagine it, just as you say it, as a spy versus spy thing. Yeah, except that they have sex. Yeah, like a spy versus spy thing. Yeah. I assume that's the subtext of spy versus spy throughout all these I years. I never read it in that particular light, but you might be right. Uh, speaking of Boom, Over the Garden Wall, number one of four. Mm. It's a comic book, not a continuation, not a sequel, a mid-equal. It takes place between certain episodes of the very well-regarded Cartoon Network uh, miniseries. Which, which I, I have not seen yet. I have not seen. It got rave reviews. Mm-hmm. Ridiculously rave reviews. Some people... Rated it higher than Gravity Falls, for instance. Mm. Interesting. And Boom adaptations of uh, Cartoon Network uh, properties usually turn out very well. Anything else from Boom? One other thing. Justin Jordan has a new series with George Coelho called John Flood Number 1. Now, it's a police procedural, and as is usually the case with police procedurals, there's a quirk. This one being that John Flood doesn't sleep, so he's in a constant dream state, and he's not sure what's real and what isn't, and he sees patterns. No, okay. Justin Jordan did spread, and I wasn't very impressed by that. But I yeah. feel like maybe I'd be willing to give this one or two issues just to see. They're really reaching with the weird detective thing. How weirder can you make it? What other gimmick I'm is left? I'm assuming that this is meant to replace Hex. We've had everything. By the time of Chew, by the time of the cannibalistic <laughs> detective, we've pretty much had everything. Uh, Tap dancing detective? Dark Horse have in their Dark Horse presents right now something called Weird Detective. Which is even stranger. There's a detective with more senses than any human has. Apparently he's an alien, which is fine. And then you discover he took the place of a regular shitty human detective. And this detective find himself in the body of the alien in another world. Wow. That's weird. That's L- That's a weird detective, weird detective. That's what you go for, though. From the strange going stranger <laughs> department from IDW. Yes. Drive number one of four. By Michael Bendetto and Antonio Fiuso. That's an adaptation of the movie. I didn't even know which drive. Is it the movie? The Ryan Gosling. Or is it the Nathan Fillion show that was canceled after four episodes? No, no, it's the Ryan Gosling, uh, Winding Wentworth and Cry movie. Which is a very good movie, but it's very good from a movie thing. It's very big on And this is an adaptation of it. Yes, yes, it's a four-issue adaptation. Uh, Straight adaptation. I haven't seen that in a long, long, and long from time. IDW of all places. Well, no, IDW do it. <laughs> IDW is okay, but straight up adaptation, not a continuation, not a variation. Well, they do have something new coming out by Chris Ryle and Nelson Daniel called String Divers. This is a five issue miniseries. Renegades saving the world from subatomic arcane threats. Whatever that means. I'm assuming that Grant Morrison is sitting somewhere going, you know. Tachyons! Tachyons! 
String Fury. Or he's probably sending like Chris Ryle letters saying, if you are going to delve into chaos theory, what you might want to know is that the arcane powers of the universe function. No, 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 no. Not going to go down that road. Anything else? That pretty much sums up the August previews. Can we actually talk about comics? We can review comics. Now, since we've been gone for a while, we're going to do something different this time. Normally, we do three number ones in a trade. But since we were gone for three weeks, we will instead be reviewing a few more number ones that came out while we were away. So let's start with the big one. A-Force number one. We've mentioned that before. I have a deja vu. may have come up. Written by G. Willow Wilson and Marguerite Bennett. Art by George Molina and Craig Young. The full title is Secret Wars A-Force number one. Mm -hmm. It's a Secret Wars tie-in. And we're in a world called Arcadia in which... Baroness Shiok rules with not an iron fist, with a very a green fist. Yes, and it's not a fist. Yeah, with an open hand. It's apparently a very nice place, as good as a realm can be under the universe of God Doom. Mm-hmm. And the local superhero team is called the A Force. It's an all female team taken from all over the Marvel universe. We have Captain Marvel. We have uh, Nico Minar from the Runaways. We Dazzler. have Miss America. Classic disco dazzler, by the way. Yes. Uh, Miss America from Young Avengers. And uh, where was she originally from? Joe Casey's Vengeance, I think. You know, I never figured that part out. I, th- I think she's... I only saw her for the first time in Young Avengers. Yeah. I just assumed she was a new character. She was in Joe Casey's miniseries or something. Okay. And it starts with them, with the team going out to fight some odd threat. And because of reasons, Miss America breaks one of the rules of Doom. And so must be banished forever. That's the plot. Hmm. So this was basically the worst case scenario for me. <laughs> Why? Okay. Reality has been altered, right? Everyone's memories have been rewritten, so they're all out of character. None of their voices sound right. A villain is God King, and no one questions this. Tom, are you feeling any particular deja vu at the moment? Maybe a house that had a certain letter attached to it? Age of Apocalypse? Not where I was going, but that's <laughs> Because House of M is Age of Apocalypse is... You know, all of them. No, 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 no. See, Age of X, when Mike Carey did a sort of mini crossover. I didn't know what Secret Wars was going to do when they got to Battleworld. But to do this again, what happens as a result of this premise, and it's not really Bennett and Wilson's fault, right? Like, this is the premise of Secret Wars as a whole, is that the world has been rewritten in this way. But what's happening is that they don't have the time or the space to explain to us why these women are behaving the way that they are because from their perspective they've always been on battle my problem with this is in the world building department now i've read two other secret wars tie-ins number one uh master of kung fu and planet hulk and they both were based on existing genres so planet hulk is a gladiator thing it's like the original planet hulk and master of kung fu is an old kung fu film you know Mm -hmm. it's a shaw brothers production this and by basing themselves on pre-existing ideas of worlds, they could just, you know, do the, oh, this is this type of world, and here's those characters doing their things. What's the world building here? Because all of these characters dress up on variations of their old costumes. And Miss America mentions Sharknado. So right. in this reality, in which She-Hulk is a baroness and Doom is a god, Sharknado exists. That's already a problem, though. Forget Sh- Sharknado. Like, the fact that She-Hulk is a baroness, right? Jennifer Walters is a baroness under God King Doom, and she's okay with that? That's not she. No, I no, I don't have a problem with that. I can accept that. I just can't accept what they're making of it, because the world and the characters in it, therefore, 
aren't believable to me. Of I, course they're not. You have never seen these characters. Yeah, it's a literal patchwork. Right. And it doesn't feel... It's not even a patchwork. It's They've been wallpapered over, right? The personalities of every character in this book have no resemblance to anything. Look at Sister Grimm, for example. Yeah. This is the leader of the Runaways. Why is she having mental breakdowns just because apparently everyone at Marvel all started watching Game of Thrones at the same time because America Chavez gets sent maybe, to the wall? Maybe in this continuation, Avengers Arena happened. That wasn't a bad series. It was a bad idea. It wasn't a bad series. I mean, because then you're reading this and it's like you cannot base your reading of this issue on the characters because they are acting in ways that may be consistent for people who have lived in Arcadia all this time, right? Like, they come to America Chavez and they're like, oh, you broke Doom's rule. That doesn't say anything to us. We're being thrown in in Medias Race, but who cares? The storytelling is a bit patchy. There's the thing with the Megalodon. Now, yeah. in page 9, is he firing a laser from his mouth? He is, certainly seems to. Is somebody firing a laser at him? Is somebody stuck in his mouth? Did he eat anybody that can shoot lasers? I don't know. Because we see Dazzle later, so we assume... She shot at him, but... Well, what she says is, come at me, basically. So it seems that he fires at her and she sends it back to him. Because that's Dazzler's power. Like, she absorbs sound and shoots back light. And then he's thrown away for some reason, from an odd angle. I don't know. That's not a good storytelling. The the art doesn't help here. It's competent, but unclear. Really uh, disappointing. Uh-huh. Really disappointing. Like, the fact, just the basic fact that they started with a rehash of House of M, right down to the fact that the issue ends with, like, something from outside coming in that's supposedly going to clue them into the fact that the world has changed. Also, if they're living in this world and they know that Doom is God, why does America even, you know, come close to throwing something over the wall. You well, that's su- in character for America. Shana. No, but... She doesn't in, think about But this. in a universe where you know God exists and he's pissed at you for doing certain things, you wouldn't do that. Impulse. No, she would. It's in character for her, at least the way that Kieran Gillen depicted her, that she's a sort of yeah, hothead but, but, who does things but in this, thinking. But in this world, they're all... She's not rebelling against anything. Everybody's living happily in Arcadia. Well, that's the tension between, like, on the one hand, they have to be recognizable in some way, shape, or form, and yet, no, they shouldn't, because, because if they had always been on Battleworld, then we don't know these people. Yeah, from her few lines, I don't get the sense of the Karen Gillen screw-everything no, version. The fact that She-Hulk tries to defend America Chavez and Doom is like, no, she must be taken away, and... She doesn't do anything. She-Hulk is just like, oh well, she gets sent to the wall, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. It just does not make any kind of sense at all, and I don't understand it, and I didn't enjoy it. The problem that I have here is that I'm not sure what to do. If this book continues after Secret Wars, I'm operating on the assumption that they would restore some kind of recognizable tropes to these characters, right? Some way that they can be people who I actually recognize and want to read about again. If that were to happen, I might come back and try it. But, like, this is House of M. And I hated House of M the first time. And I don't have the patience to go through it again. So, nope. Uh, Shall we do Fight Club? Fight Club 2, number 1. That's not going to be confusing. (laughs) No, it's not. We're adults. Chuck Palahniuk and Cameron Stewart, who there's a name I did not expect to see on this book. Well, I expect it because I've read the previews. We both read them. (laughs) It slipped my mind, I guess. It's a continuation of the novel, not the film, which I haven't read. Mm -hmm. This is a very Chuck Palahniuk comic. You want to introduce it? Because I've never read the Chuck Palahniuk book. Neither have I. Ah. 
<laughs> I have seen the film, and I know that the film took liberties with the book, but I also know that Chuck Palahniuk was okay with those liberties. Well, so I've read some of his nonfiction articles, so you are right. It is a very Chuck Palahniuk thing, <sighs> from feeling alone. I don't know that there's anything insightful to parse here, because... Okay, it's an unpleasant comic to read, which, if you're familiar with the works of Chuck Palahniuk at all, you know that it's an unpleasant It's intentionally, comic. yes. Yeah, it's deliberately. What's the way. plot? The plot of this is that, having been treated for the multiple personality Durden. disorder that manifested as Tyler Durden, Sebastian, as he's currently going by, is married to Marla, and he has a son, and basically, like, he ended up going back to the kind of domestic life that Tyler Durden found revolting. He moved from uh, Fight Club to American Beauty. Right. That sums it up actually pretty nicely. Yeah. Um, Fight Club 2, American Boogaloo. Yeah. That, that about sums it up. And then, you know, the issue basically is him trapped in this, the horror of suburbia with his wife and son. And his wife is like, oh, I remember when he used to be so exciting. And she goes and sits in... I don't even know what that scene was. Like Support says, groups for people with certain conditions. In this case, a condition that makes nine-year-olds look like they're 90. It's, it's, a, it's a thing. It's a very rare thing, it's but a it's a thing. thing. It's a rare thing. I think it's called like systemic hypoplasia or something. Yeah, they mention it know. in the comic. And then she's like, he doesn't give me an orgasm. And the nine-year-old who looks like 90 is like, what's an orgasm? Ick. <laughs> and then really like... It's pretty much just reiterating the same mindset as before. Tyler, of course, pops up, inevitably. And although it's a very different interpretation of the character. He looks more like Fabio than like... <laughs> I, I think of Brad Pitt. He just, he literally he looks like... He does look like the, he looks like, the main, like the main character with his hair, you know, painted blonde and longer. Yeah, which I'm guessing is intentional. Because yeah. more people would have seen the film than the book at this point. Yeah. I don't think it's a badly written comic. It sets out all its point. It knows what it wants to do. I think the problem is... What it wants to do is something that Fight Club already did. Yeah. And what it did was in 1999. That's when the film came out. The book came out, what, four years earlier? Yeah. There's no it's, evolution here in terms of the mindset. And, it's the same anarchic and it, BS as before. No. And in, in the 21st century, in 2015, it feels out of place. The concern of the fallen manhood <laughs> is not a popular thing to do right now because by well, this point either you accepted and changed with the times or you're, or you're a man's right activist. They would love this book. No, I don't think so because it, I assume it would end up mocking them because Chuck Palahniuk isn't that unself-aware. Isn't he? No. I well, mean, because the issue manages to sort of... It glorifies Tyler. Well, that's what Fight Club did in its first half, and then you realize he's a right. maniac. Is there a point to this beyond just reiterating the first... You know, the first film was great, and I haven't the read the book. The issue seems to be doing something with the sun, but I had no idea. Like, they get to the end, and it's like, so I don't understand what... Because he's medicated, but then he's not medicated because his wife has been swooping... I think they're doing well the whole... The narrator is not sure what's happening to himself. There's some nice artistic bits with the pills actually falling on the images and yeah. covering words and oh, so covering... Stuart does a good job. Yeah. yeah. What does it add to the Fight Club idea, to the first film, to the first book? Also, I'm if really... Anything, it shifts the emphasis. All of a sudden, he's like, I escaped for 53 minutes a day and I'm running the world. Tyler Durden is now a global phenomenon. And I think you might be stretching credibility just a, a bit. I'm also... I'm unsure about the first page, which ends with a... Uh, publicize us mm -hmm. which is i hope it's supposed to be a mockery of itself because if they take it seriously 
that's the sort of thing that the movie and the book were against. The whole point of it was the Tyler's, you know, primitivism, the whole Tech Baker Manhood was a false idea. It knocks it down. That's the anti-men's right activist movie slash novel. Except that here he's reiterating yeah. the same point again, and then he sort of turns out to be true, because Tyler has all of these supporters, well, right? It's one of those, maybe when it finishes, I'll read it if I, I hear good reviews. Yeah, I'm not... Based on this issue, I'm not sticking around to read it monthly. Let's talk about Valhalla Mad number one. Uh, by Joe Casey. Joe Casey and Paul Mayberry, image. Let's get the elephant in the room out of the way. This is Thor, Hogan, and Skinny Volstag. In all their old school curviness, come to Earth to basically do the plot of the last Cornetto movie at World's End. Yeah, they're gonna they're drink. They're doing a pub crawl across the entire planet. They're gonna drink, they're gonna have gluttonalia, and they're gonna have fun. Gluttonalia, that's, that's a great name when for a rock. When we read the man. preview section, we were like, we have to read this issue. But I will say that while you do have the sort of funny and it's definitely poking fun the, the gentrification store. line is great <laughs> this be gentrification i believe that's a laugh out loud line and it's rare that you find these in comics it is casey does two interesting things here that i wasn't expecting first of all the first thing that the heroes do when they land is save a plane so they're heroes and, There's no ambiguity about that. And like, they've been here before. And people know about it. Yeah. That's the second thing. The fact that it's not a secret. Like, they show up, and this old cop is like, yeah, I remember when you guys were here last time, and then, oh, what's it like? They come from a land called Fiken, where it... it yeah, yeah, and, yeah, it's, and it's, it's the Jack Kirby thing. It's Joe Casey does it every once in a while. It's been, what, five years since Godland? <laughs> he's rested, he's filled up. He's ready. And he found an artist who could pull it off because uh, now, Mayberry's designs are really now, good. I like the designs, the coloring I have a problem with because the coloring in this issue is very like not smooth, almost watery. Mm-hmm. Everything is sort of pool shaped out of the lines and that's very un-Kirby and it's not good for the storytelling, I think. It's a bit sloppier, but I think yeah. like when they show like Viking with all the stars and, and all it's, that. It's pretty, but it's sloppy. Yeah. And... The actual plot is Fredbear, they coming and they drink. And at the end of the issue, it's like, there's this guy, he's probably going to be important. No, Maybe. but it does set up a few things. First of all, it sets up the notion that this is public knowledge. Right? Yes. When they show up, the initial reaction, and everyone there is like under 40, the initial reaction is, you know, arrest them, they put them on the news, who are they? And it's the old cop who sort of normalizes it. But at the same time, when they come into the bar, right, to start the process, make us this drink the way your grandfather did, there's an old man sitting at the bar who says, every time you guys show up, it's nothing but destruction and pain. Yeah. And they sort of usher him out, but it suggests that there's a darker undertone here. This is not just a pub crawl. There's something else going on that will unfold. Yeah, it's Joe so, Casey. Whenever he's, whenever Joe Casey is having fun, he has a point to it, whether you yeah. like it or not. He's trying to make a point. So in that sense, I feel like it's effective. It uses the page space that it has very well. First instinct they have is to save the plane. That means these guys are heroes. But on the other hand, unless the old man is like bitter or lying or whatever reason, if you take him at face value, it may also mean, and in fact, Knox, like the Thor stand-in says, he has this whole pontificating speech, Stanley, Thor, like these and thous and thys and all that. But the way that he says humans aren't aware of what we do for you to protect your realm and we exist in a different time. So it does suggest that there might be 
something else happening that complicates the story. It's not just a road trip with three Norse gods. And if that is the case, I'm here for this because I like the contrast. I'm interested, but I'm unsure. And the art... I like Paul Mabry in general. Something here didn't click for me. To be fair, it's clear. Also, I'm not quite sure about some of the designs. The claw feet for one of them. The irritator. That was weird. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't know where that came from. So is he wearing, like, dragon shoes or are his feet actual claws? We'll find out, I guess. We will. I mean, I'm, I'm here for the duration. I really like the, the contrast. Uh, shall we move on to Killstrike? Oh, Killstrike. Oh. There are a couple of ways you could do it. It's like, oh, Killstrike. Oh, Killstrike. Oh? Oh, Killstrike! Ah, Killstrike. I need to quote this. Can I quote this? Yes. Okay, so it's Max Bemis and Logan Farber. Boom. Quote from the issue. Killstrike is the quintessential 90s hero. He makes Steven Seagal look like Stephen Hawking. I would argue he was the worst written, most uneven caricature of a human being ever set to graphic fiction. Oh my god, I love this issue so much. Okay, the plot. Yes. Uh, our uh, protagonist is a modern-day comic book, not critic, a fan, and he's the sort of guy who reads the comics journal, mm-hmm. and only the comics oh, journals. Yes. And at his youth, at his misguided youth, he used to read something called Killstrike, which came out from Image, we assume. <laughs> no names used, which is indeed the worst comic ever. Oh my god. But... He you has you ish- assume that it was by Rob Liefeld, yeah. you? <laughs> uh, but the time has come, as all times come. Issue number one is not worth a lot of money. And he's going to run back to his home and grab it. And by God, he hates his youth, but he's going to earn something from them. Only when he picks up the comic, Killstrike comes out on the mission of vengeance. Vengeance! Against something. He's not sure what. <laughs> you know, vengeance is what he does. Oh, my God. It's like we've talked about Gravity Falls. The episode where they bring up the Street Fighter character. Mm-hmm. He's like, I must fight the Ultimate Fight Fighters. Take me to the Soviet Union. <laughs> That's going to be a problem for several reasons. Can we talk about Killstrike's design for a moment? He has a belt of pouches. <laughs> and no shirt. And no shirt. And tribal <laughs> tattoos. And, and knives right under his armpit. And his hair is styled like a beret. Can we talk about this for a second? Like, this is very, very clearly a piss take of Rob Liefeld. We're not even (laughs) hiding it. Killstrike catches a look at Jared's wife and is like, why are her bosoms so small? (laughs) This is a parody of 90s image, and it's glorious. Now, I will say this, though. It's a little clumsy, because in order to explain the joke... Jared has to give this very long lecture to his wife, who, to be fair, I mean, that's the premise of Journey into Misery, so I'm assuming that that's the sort of thing that just happens, but she's sitting there and she's like, so why do you want to sell the comics? Like, so that I can have vengeance on the generation of comic book writers who ruined comics forever. Now, on the one end, it is a parody of, you know, that type of image, which is an is a parody to make ever since, uh, what was it, uh, Grant Morrison's Doom Force? But on the other hand, it's a parody about the type of people who read the comic. <laughs> what Bemis is doing is Jared blames Killstrike, or Killstrike's writers more yes. specifically, for the collapse of the comics industry in the 90s. What he's conveniently overlooking is that the people who were also responsible for that collapse were speculators. You know, the people who bought the rare comics, put them in the box somewhere, and then sold them for $100,000, as Jared does... Nobody even calls him on it, but the in-joke is there. And Killstrike is very well written because he's taking it 
all in face values like well yeah your world is weird to me and your women lack bosoms and your men lack muscle but you know I'm here I'm jumping like, dimension I have a mission I must commit vengeance against someone anyone really <laughs> just point me at someone and tell me to shoot him and once I kill him I can go home what I really really like about this and now if you compare this for example to Fight Club 2 yeah Killstrike is very clearly a parody of that mindset, right? The pouches and the muscles and all of that. I think he has Cable and Deadpool's pose on the cover. Oh, I think that, oh, that's yes, what yes. it is, right? Like yeah, with the, Cable the big, having the big gun, gun and, and, and Deadpool, Deadpool underneath. lurching beneath. So, I mean, this is very conscious and very deliberate. But what's going on here is that he's a parody in a very clear and visible way where Fight Club 2 is like, I'm not entirely sure if you're glorifying him or criticizing him. Like, it's muddled in Can we issue. talk about the art? Can we talk about Logan Ferber? I don't know where Boom found him, but, but they better keep, keep him. Oh, him. yeah. That's, wow. That's, it's a sort of a mix between the Kaboom style to more Mad Magazine influence, you know, the wild faces mm-hmm. and the cartoonish overtones. Really, that's... It's a great looking comic. His facial expressions. Like on every page, Killstrike has this look on his face that I swear to God is taken out of some 90s comics. And uh, coloring by uh, Juan Manuel Tamburas is also very good, very yep. striking. It's a good issue it's number wonderful. one. It's a four issue miniseries. Yes, and I'm happy it's only four issues because <sighs> the joke would wear thin. Would it? Yes. I feel like even if the joke wore thin, I'd want to stick around for like 12 issues uh, because it's also, funny. Also, I forgot to mention how happy I am that Killstrike shows up first third of the issue. It's not one of those, he shows up at the end, what a shock. Oh, because, no. Because no. it's one of those things people would do nowadays, even though we know the concept. Boom doesn't really do that. They yeah, don't go thank for God. decompression in, that, in the same way. But I mean, yeah. every aspect of this story, the fact that he introduces... Killstrike to his wife as Chaim, my Chaim Jewish bodybuilder, <laughs> Jewish bodybuilder like, cousin. Why do you have tribal tattoos? And he's like, Why is your chest so small? And it's just every page here has some kind of pointed jab at the '90s, which really, like, if you're gonna make fun of anything, make fun of the '90s. That's yeah. Max Bemis wasn't a writer I was sold on, but this is good. It is fantastic. Yeah, he found his voice. I'm here for all of it. Okay, and our final issue number one. Yes. This one has an interesting story to it. Fresh Romance, number one, mm-hmm. from Rosie Press Books. It was a Kickstarter project mm-hmm. by uh, Janelle Esseline and Fellows. Now, in the interest of full disclosure... I you, kickstarted it. You kickstarted it, I didn't. It wasn't like I gave them 500 bucks. <laughs> I did I did the first free issue run. Okay. As the name implies, it's a romance comics. It's a romance anthology. Every issue would have free stories plus back matter mm-hmm. for $5. And it's digital only. As far as I know, there is no print edition. No, there are plans to have print edition. Okay. This issue has three number ones. Uh, the first one is School Spirit by uh, Kate Lath and Ariel Jovelenos. Uh, ruined by Sarah Vaughn and Sarah Winfred Cyril, and The Ruby Equation by Sarah Kuhn and Sally Jane Thompson. How many Sarahs are in this <laughs> issue? There are six major creators and three of them are Sarahs. That's suspicious. Crisis on Infinite Sarahs. It's like when you look at the Marvel movies and there's all these Chris's walking <laughs> the about. Chris's. Yes. So, this is an anthology, basically. Now, if I understood correctly, Fresh Romance 1, 2, and 3 are going to show these stories as three-parters. Like, when you get to the third issue, it's the end of all of these stories. I'm not sure. I don't think they, they imply that. 
I have. So let's start with the three. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do let's do okay. all of them. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about school spirit. I think this one I want to start with the art because Joe Valenos does great design work. It's charming. It's one of those ridiculously charming things. Mm-hmm. The movement isn't there. You know, some of it is very very posy. You know, everybody's just standing. I don't get the sense of movement from when they introduce the school. You know, there's a big half page shot of it and nobody's moving everybody's standing right but if you take it as it is what it's trying to do it's very charming which is fine the story i'm not sure what it's trying to do it's a there's this school and one of the characters is one of those romantic fixer types who makes sure that everybody has our friends is having a date who is that person though yeah because Okay, so the problem here is that there are five active characters, but Leth doesn't introduce them properly. It takes some time to differentiate between them, and then you have Justine, for example. She's flirting with Miles, but then she's not actually interested in Miles. She's trying to get him to go out with someone else, and then Corinne... What's her deal? It's not really clear because she goes to... It's, it's like very, very confusing. And I get what she's trying to do. Like, she's trying to create this sort of network of friends within a high school setting where everybody's doing their own thing and everybody's like... They have their own angle to play. But in the space of, you know, what is it? 10 pages, 12 yeah, pages. Yeah, 12 pages. There just isn't enough space to introduce all of the characters, especially given that at the end of this first part of the story... Something weird happens that, as far as I could tell, was not foreshadowed anywhere. There's a supernatural angle here that wasn't explained. And I'm like, well, why... Well, I kind of like the supernatural angle simply because it's unusual. But it's out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, it's never foreshadowed. Why is it that character and not Justine, since she's the one who's going around manipulating Miles at every step, but then she's not actually interested in him, but then it was just, like, so... Out of balance? I didn't get it. Like, I didn't understand what was happening. There's this revelation about who Justine is really interested in, but she started the story going into school with Miles. So what was going on over there? Like, I don't, like, I don't understand the dynamics. I'm out of my depth in this, in this type of stories. I could do Grant Morrison metaphysics all day long, but you know, school politics and school friendship confuses the hell out of me. I feel like if she had had a character page, or if she had had at least one page that demonstrated who these people were before we get into the tangled connection, dramatis personae, that would have been great. Because as it stands, it's, I don't yeah, get it. it's it's a, the art is good, the story is a bit okay. Speaking of good art and story, ruined. That's kind of the trend. No, no. Well, trend two out of three. Yeah. Uh, ruined by Sarah Vaughan and Sarah Winfred Serrell is a Victorian romance thing. And there isn't any story here. There's this woman, uh, Catherine, mm-hmm. and she gets a letter from her lover, but she can't be with her lover because her father basically sold her to someone for prestige, for mm-hmm. title, which is a very... It's a cliche. Victorian, yeah, it's a Victorian know. cliche. Jane Austen, yeah. one. But there isn't a story here. She reads the letter, and then she's taken to be married, and she meets her husband-to-be, and... It, well, I don't think it's, it's not even the first act. It's like the first five minutes of a movie. I don't think it's that there's no story. It's that there's no innovation in the story. The setup here is very clear. 
You have yeah. the letter that she's reading, and you have the gossip that people are whispering about her as she's walking down the aisle. Like, her father shouldn't have done this, and her grandfather, and like, everybody knows everybody's business. It's Victorian England. You're used to it. But the thing is, you keep waiting for the twist. In school spirit, there is a twist. Granted, it's not a twist that makes any sense because you don't know where it's coming from, but there is sort of that, oh, that's what we're going for. And here, she walks down the aisle, she faces this guy, the minister starts reading the vows, and that's the end of the story to be continued. And based uh, yeah. on that, I wouldn't want to continue. Again, the art is very charming. The art is always strong here. It's a bit simple, but it's the kind of symbol that I like. But The art's great, but what's the pacing's the point? off. The pacing is completely off. Maybe if she had started with the wedding... And then given us the information, like going, I don't yeah. know, like you, you had to do something. You think maybe it was written for a standalone and then it was cut up for that. publication? I have no doubt. Like this reads like it arbitrarily stops just because like you have X amount of pages. Okay. Then we have something called the Divorcee Club, which is not a comic, so we'll not review it, no, I think. No, it's, it's an advice column from people who've been divorced to people who hopefully aren't getting divorced, but. Whatever, you know, it's a, it's a letter Okay, pages. and the last story is the best. Yes, this uh, one I really like. The Ruby Equation by Sarah Kuhn, art by Sally Gerald Thompson, and yeah, colors by Savannah Ganucho. Ruby is a, uh-huh. a romantic fix- <laughs> fixer-upper with a supernatural bent. Well, is she? Well, she's basically forced by her bosses, whoever they are, they're mysterious them, to make people not even fall in love, just meet cute At least that's how she sees her job and her actual Earth boss tells her that's not what you're supposed to do. And she's like, doesn't matter. They matched up even for a day. I'm good. And she has to match up a certain number before she can get her promotion to something she actually wants to do. And the way that she does these matches is that she's using mathematical formulas and minor, minor manipulations. They like the same same cartoon. Make him sneeze, right? And then because he sneezes, the other person notices and then click love at first sight. She's like a very strange Cupid. And the way that she keeps saying homeworld, like I'm going back to the homeworld mm-hmm. makes me think she's an alien. And there's a lot here that's hinted at, but I mean, again, like when we were talking about innovation, where's the twist? So here we really do have the best of both worlds. It like, almost feels like touched by an angel for the modern day romantic comedy set. Except no Jesus, which is always a good thing. I like Jesus. Jesus I like, is cool. I don't have time for him. Another comeback that disappointed. And this one actually does the introduce the characters, introduce the concepts, and have something interesting for the final because she actually fulfills her obligation, or she thinks she does. And right. the foreshadowing is very clear here that she's doing something wrong. Yes. Like, she's creating all of these matches, and she's making these people... She's not making them fall in love, but she's causing them to notice each other in such a way that they click on some level. And her boss tells her... And it's like, a very shallow level. Up, yeah, the people you just paired up have no chemistry. And she's like, it doesn't matter. You know, they math, beats ki- math beats, math beats chemistry. So there's a lot that can be done here, like a lot of potential in just a few pages. And I feel like this is really the only story that has that. This I want to read. And, well, I'm in it for the three-issue all mm-hmm. anyway. And so I'll read this. I think one of the major problems I had with that, we talked about it before the recording, a comic anthology should probably have one story per issue which is closed which is yep. done in one. That's how Dark Horse Presents does it. That's how uh, Judge Dredd magazine does it. That's how most of them mm-hmm. do it. Because it gives you the sense of, well, at least I've earned one thing complete and I don't 
have to continue, even if you have to continue, hopefully, because you like all of the stories. Right. And here it's like, well, you have to continue. You know, you never, you don't have any sense of closure on any of the free stories. Only one of which is very, very good, and the one of which is okay, and one is, it's pretty. Yeah, one, the way that this breaks down is that the Ruby equation is the best one. Yeah. School spirit might be good, but is incomprehensible. It like, needs, there's no yeah, way it needed more space. And Ruined doesn't leave any impression at all, because there's nothing going on there. My golden rule with anthologies is that there has to be a majority of stories here that I want to read more of. And here, you know, I really want more of the Ruby Equation, but I would not keep buying issues of Fresh Romance in order to follow it. If it ever came out on its own, if Sarah Kuhn and Sally Jane Thompson and Savannah Ganajo ever decided to... I don't know, like, what their plan is here. If they're intending to, once the story's done, collect them as digital graphic novels, I would buy the Ruby Equation. Yeah. But I wouldn't even touch the other two. The, so, uh, I, like, I don't know what could be good, uh, but it didn't have enough time. Ruins. Even the next issue solicitation for Ruin is, well, bride and groom are together for the first time. Like, Great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, I I've read. I pretty much guessed where that was going. <laughs> yes, I've read this. And in fact, the artwork that Yannick Panquette draws, is that not Jane Austen and like, you know, Pride yeah, and Prejudice yeah. or whatever? It's like, you maybe know, not I, draw attention you to know, the fact you know, that I think, I think the problem is because when Janelle Asseline started, she said, it's supposed to be a romance comic because those don't exist. And in a lot of ways, it is, a, you know, a straightforward mm-hmm. romance. There isn't any spin. There isn't, aside from Ruby Equation, there's just, here's what it is. And it's not for me. I'm not a big fan of romance novels, of romance movies, mm-hmm. See, of romantic problem, comedies. The problem that I have with that argument, and really, of all people, Janelle Slynn should know better than this, because the reason that there are no romance comics out these days is because the way that they are written, the classic form, for serial comics, doesn't really work anymore. You cannot charge people $3.99, $4.99, $5.99 for romance comics the way they used to be written. What I would have expected was that if they're going to do this, then they're going to do some kind of innovation that at least takes into account some twist, right? Something you're offering. Well, I guess Gem and the Holograms is a romance comic in the sense. But Gem and the Holograms yeah. has like Sophie something Campbell else. has so much to offer that book. Right? Yeah, yeah. Even in terms of you know. I did some research like after I read the first issue because I really did enjoy it. And it turned out that in the original animated series, she never really has a convincing reason for having a dual identity and for lying to her boyfriend and like leading a double life. It's just sort of the thing that she does. In the comic, the first thing that Kelly Thompson did was establish she has stage fright. That's why she takes on an alter ego that can be this performer and then go back to being her normal self. Yep. So it's like... That would be the formula for if you want to bring something back that has lapsed and that isn't around anymore, you have to take into account the things that were done wrong and do better than that. And I feel like if more of these comics had been like the Ruby Equation, then it would have been fantastic. Um, But I feel like at this point, Secret Love has more of a chance of being an effective contemporary romance comic as a Secret Wars tie-in of all the things, than this. And this was something that was kickstarted in order to be unique. Unfortunate. Yeah. Very unfortunate that it turned out. Yeah, way. sorry. Also, $5, it's 43 it's pages, but... I mean, listen, it's act- the actual is com- coming out, yeah. right? Island is coming out with more content, with... $8, pages. 100 pages. It's $8, but... 
you're getting three times the the comic. Yeah, and when they first published Fresh Comics, they said if we go above a certain limit, it's not you get more contact, it's the creators get paid more, which, you know, fine for them. Not for us. Yeah, but it's not even 43 pages for $5 because when, once you remove all the back matter and sketches, the, the actual... Columns and yeah, the Yeah, the actual comics is 24 pages, which is regular, you know, for 5 bucks. No. Digital only, it's not even print. And I mean, listen, the project was funded. Yeah. But what was unclear to me is how much does that fund, like how many issues are going to be produced? Is it only three? No, no, they're doing a full year run because a they full pro- year run based at on least, at least a full year run. And then because by one of the options when you funded it was a full year run doing right. a 12 issues. Well, the fact that they promised it doesn't necessarily mean... Well, they got enough money, and all the creators are signed up. So I I don't think it's one of those things that will fail by being unprofessional and just stop... I mean, it's Janelle Aslan. Yeah. She, she's not going to Yeah, but out. like you said, first three stories, only one of them is good. The other two are... Meh. It doesn't create a great impression. I'm thinking if I had come to, say, Gumroad or a, a digital comic store, like Comixology or something, and they were offering this issue, and it was four ninety nine, and I was looking at it, and it's like, I bought it, and I read it, and re- it's one out of three for me. I would feel stupid. Granted that anthologies are always a gamble, but... I would have hoped that more care would have been exercised, especially since we're dealing with professionals, right? Like, these are not people who are... No, it, no it's, again, it's Kate, Kate Leth. Leth. Yeah. Kate Leth doesn't know how to pace the story? I mean, come on. So, a disappointment. I would like to see the next two issues just for the Ruby equation, but in all fairness, like, again, I, I will keep my eyes open for Rosie Press, is it? Yeah. If they announce a graphic novel of the Ruby Equation, I'll buy that. Other than that, I really have nothing. No, there's nothing here for me. Okay, so that was that. That and was a that ton of reviews. Mega review, mega previews, mega sized episode of the Smorgasbord. Till next time, I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Bon appetit. <laughs>